I've never been a very creative person. Uh, it's true to say that uh, apart from writing some fairly appalling poetry when I was a teenager, oh, woe is me, life is awful, give me black, black on black, black is good, I like black. Um, essentially, that was the height of it. I have no ear for music. For those of you, I apologize, who are sitting anywhere near me. And I'm also very mindful that I have no ability in art. Uh, my O-level art exam, there was a mysterious accident involving a pot of water and a wonderful watercolor that I'd created for a still life of a... Well, it could have been anything, really. I don't, I don't really know. But I didn't, want to, I didn't want to foist it upon the examiner, so I thought destruction was better than that. But I've been blessed with a creative family. My dad is a carpenter, and uh, we always used to enjoy coming back every weekend uh, uh, when we'd been away to see what he'd made that week. I remember one week coming back, and there was a, there was a full-sized carriage for a horse, and, yeah, like a horse and carriage, and he just built it in a week. And I said, how did you learn to do that? And he said, I don't know. I looked at it, and I just put the bits together. Didn't he just hate that? <laughs> my, dad start, uh, my brother started life as an auditor, saw the light, got away from accountancy, Uh, We will pray for you accountants out there. And um, he is now a builder, and he builds, and he builds all sorts of things, and he makes these wonderful things. And even in my own family, I've been really blessed. Um, As many of you will know, if you've been around our house, you'll know that my wife Lynn is Mrs. Craft, which is why I no longer have a garage, because it's filled with craft stuff. And I no longer have a loft, because it's filled with craft stuff. And I no longer have a dining room or an office, because it's filled with craft stuff. And then it's forever making things, and making some really good things. And they're available on our Etsy store. W- no. <laughs> and I'm also blessed that my daughter Holly is very musical, and she can play the guitar, and she can play the piano, and she is a wordsmith, and she can write wonderful things. And our, daughter, our other daughter, Bryony, is an award-winning filmmaker, and she is also extremely musical and singer and all that sort of thing. And I hate them all. <laughs> but of course, we all make things. We all, in some way, create. It's in our nature to create. Whether you are creating a wonderful meal or you are creating a wonderful piece of work or art or music or whatever it is, we are always at work and at play creating. We create for pleasure and we create for employment. The Christian author Jen Wilkin has said that we are not creation optional beings. It's in our DNA. Yet, if we were honest, even the best artist, the best architect and engineer, the best author, poet or speaker, the best musician or chef does not come close to the wonder we see around us. I remember a few years ago seeing pictures taken from the Hubble Space Telescope of galaxies um, far out in space. The beauty and colours of the intricacy, sorry, it's not showing all that much, but how wonderful are those colours? Can you imagine the awesomeness of a God who doesn't just make a galaxy but says, I'm going to fill it with color? And yet, even on Earth, we can check out some pictures through electron microscopes and be amazed at the wonderful makeup of the world around us. I chose that one because it was the least scary, because if you Google electron microscope, you basically see things like bed bugs and stuff, and you would never get into bed again if you saw what they looked like under an electron microscope. 
But we can see these wonders. It seems that no matter how good we get, we will always fall short of the wonders around us. Our creations are pale imitations of creation. That is why when we turn to our passage, we need to be reminded afresh that we are the created in the presence of the great creator. That we are limited in the presence of the limitless one. And our desire to worship will only be met when we direct it towards our wonderful God. For those of you who are wondering, those are the three teaching points. I'll say them again just to save any embarrassment with your children. We are the created in the presence of a great creator. We are limited in the presence of the limited, limitless one. And our desire to worship will only be met when we direct it towards our wonderful God. God is uncompromising in calling out the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry at its heart is creating something in place of God. It's what we do. We will only ever want to find perfection in God, but since we settle for less, we create idols. God calls out that foolishness and challenges each of us to confront where our hearts truly lie. In answering the question, he poses us in verse 8. We are called to answer that question. Is there a God beside me? To answer that question, we need to come afresh to recognizing that we are the created in the presence of our creator. In verse 9, God speaking through Isaiah denounces the making of idols, calling them worthless and profitless. They are useless. He also calls out the makers of idols, declaring them to be nothing. And those who worship idols are ignorant to their own shame. God has a serious problem with idol making. But this is not a new thing. He is speaking to his people who hundreds of years before had received the commandments that start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. It ain't rocket science. God who brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of slavery, will have no truck with idols. God is the one who creates everything. Everything else is created. Trying to evict God from his throne and replacing him with something flawed that we have made is shameful. In verse 9 and verse 11, that word is used twice. Shame. Shame is what we are when we make idols. It's shameful because it takes no account of one of the central attributes of God, that he is uncreated. It's shameful because even our best efforts will come nowhere near the glory and wonder and majesty of God, and our best efforts are nothing, because as we are told in verse 11, craftsmen are nothing but men. Created and fallible, broken, imperfect, futile, terminal humanity. But not so with God. In the opening four words of the Bible, we are confronted with the uncreated nature of God. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. 
There was never a before him. There will never be an after him. The three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, have been and always will be in perfect, wonderful, happy communion with one another. There was never a time when it was not so. Throughout the Bible, we are reminded of the alwaysness of God. In verse 6 of our passage, God himself says it. This is what the Lord says. I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Those two words, I am, encompass the uncreated nature of God. As John Piper puts it, when we ask God how he got to be who he is, he answers, I am who I am. In other words, nobody gave me a set of genes and no power brought me into existence or shaped my personality. I had no beginning. There is no reality outside myself that did not come from me. And so there is no force or influence upon my character and power except what comes from me and is controlled by me. I am utterly absolute. God calls himself I am because there is nothing before him and nothing after him. So when he asks the question in verse 7, who then is like me? The only answer that makes sense is no one and nothing. No wonder God has no truck with idols or idol makers or idol worshippers. They are the height of foolishness because nothing compares to him. So God is, is uncreated and is perfectly happy in himself. So why make? Why do we create? Why does he create? If we turn back to the fifth word in our Bible, we see this amazing thing. The uncreated God creates. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. So God creates with a word. The diversity and energy of his creative abilities is endless, which is why we never get to the end of discovering all that he has created. And all of the three persons are actively involved in creation. The Father speaks, the Spirit hovers, and when we fast forward to the Gospel of John, we are told of Jesus that through him all things were made, without him nothing was made. The Godhead is wonderfully creative together. But why? Was there actually something missing in the Trinity? Was there some need that needed to be met? Is it that God is like the Greek gods of old, who needed the worship and praise of men, who needed the belief of men to exist? By the way, I'm a great film fan. I will advise you there is no spoiler alert because do not watch this film. It is the remake of Clash of the Titans. Imagine Zeus, the king of the gods, with a ballerina accent. That's all I'm saying to you. That's all you need to know. But in one classic scene, Zeus, the king of the gods, turns to a rather camp, Rafe Fiennes, playing Hades, and says, we need them talking of humanity, we need their belief to exist. Not so with our God. Our God needs nothing. He does not need us. Throughout Scripture, it is clear that the three persons of the Trinity are eternally, perfectly, completely happy with one another. If the universe ended right now, that would not change. So why create? The only logical answer is that it is in God's nature to create. And what he creates is good. It is wonderful. 
And we bear his image, so we create. We are following in our Father's footsteps. As our Father delights in creation, so we are called to delight in creation. But better by far is to delight in our Creator. From Genesis, when we are told that God made us in his image, to the book of Revelation, where we are told, you created all this, and by your will, that's us, uh, they existed and were created. Our nature is to create because our Father's nature is to create. And he has created us to delight and find ultimate happiness in him. If we will not find our happiness in him, we will be driven to create in the search for happiness and security. Despite our best efforts to create and to copy our creator, we will never create as he created. For he created not to meet a need, but out of sheer joy. And he is not limited in what he makes, whereas we will always be limited. We need resources of time and energy and wealth and nature to live and create, but God does not. With a word he creates, he creates the natural laws and time and all matter. I never cease to amaze me when I hear of the convoluted humanistic sciences that seek to come up with an answer of how the universe started, how we all got here, and the answer is in the first four words of the Bible. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing, God created out of nothing. He needed nothing. He spoke a word, the universe became. How wonderful, how amazing. Our jaws should drop as we think of that. That that's the God we worship. The God of all creativity, who with a word creates everything. Creates the very laws of nature which draw everything together to give us life. We are the created in the, ple- in the presence of the creator. But we are limited whilst he is li- unlimited. Turning back to verses 12 to 15, Isaiah introduces us to two craftsmen, the blacksmith and the carpenter. Despite their God-given skills, their attempts to create something divine is limited by nature. Firstly, the blacksmith. Picture him in the hot, sweaty forge, trying to bend and shape metal. Despite his skill, the finished product is dependent on his strength. Somehow it's believed that something that weakened and exhausted the blacksmith has somehow become endowed with supernatural powers that he will now bow down to his idol. Before the idol was made, you could have gone into the forge and seen it being shaped from a molten lump of metal and fired and bent and twisted and seen the effort it took to make this dead thing. He needs God's good gifts of food and water to give him the strength to make the idol that is wearing him out. He is limited as we are all by the strength we have. And when it's gone, we're done. And what about the carpenter? Despite all his abilities, his careful measuring and marking, the best he can imagine is the image of a man. He's trying to walk in the footsteps of God by making a man in his image. He's shaped that piece of wood 
But what is this shape? It is the image of a man, but it is blind and deaf and silent and dead. Not so with God. God breathed life into his man. He cared for his man. He gave senses to explore and discover the world. Speech and hearing and sight to experience the wonders around us. And more importantly, a mind and a heart to know him. The carpenter's creation is a lifeless lump of wood. No matter how beautiful, how lifelike, it's dead, silent, uncomprehending and temporary. God makes creation for his man to live in. But the carpenter's creation will live in a silent shrine. The carpenter is limited in his ability to make anything other than a copy of life. The true creator, the unlimited one, sends the sun and the rain to grow the sapling that grows into the cypress or the cedar or the oak or the pine that the carpenter then takes and shapes. The best the carpenter can do is plant a seed, a seed provided by God, and hope that the sun and rain will grow the tree that he cuts down to make his God. That's foolishness. Our every ability to create is limited, but God is not restricted by strength or ability, resource or purpose. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does all he pleases. God has the resource and the right and the power to do whatever makes him happy. This is what it means to say God is sovereign. And if God is sovereign, he can do anything he pleases then none of his purposes can be frustrated. And if none of his purposes can be frustrated, he must be happy above all things. God's joy is based on his sovereign, unlimited control of all that he has made, and all that he has made works together for his glory. As Isaiah puts it in chapter 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. So none of God's purposes can be stopped. He rules and reigns and controls and works out all creation. All that he makes is good and all that he does is good and all that he makes he owns. That's what being sovereign means. He owns all of creation is a response, and therefore is responsible for its care and has the right to do with it as he wills. The blacksmith might leave a thing half done and the carpenter might make mistakes because they are limited created beings. But God does not do things by half measures. He is the only one who truly creates without limits. And we have the joy of discovery placed in our hearts. He makes all things with infinite care and precision. Our best efforts produce the second best by comparison. Our creations, our idols, are silent statues with no power, worthless and profitless. In Psalm 115, the psalmist continues on about what idols are really like. He says, but their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, 
feet, but they cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. God is living and vibrant and involved with creation. And all that he makes, he is responsible for. And all he is responsible for, he cares for. Grasping this should drive us to worship. What joy there is in the day-by-day discovery of our sovereign, unlimited God. And yet, the reality is, our hearts are idol factories. Our minds delight in the things that we create. We turn aside from our glorious God and choose instead to worship the created. Why then do we do this? Why are we like the carpenter who tucks down a tree and uses part of the wood for fire and for food and makes the other half an idol? We are created by the hands of a happy creator. And our limitations magnify the limitless of God. But why were we made? In short, we were made to worship. To worship our sovereign God and to rejoice and delight in him. Not because he needs this worship, but because we do. Not because he needs our worship, but because we do. We need to worship him. As Isaiah draws this section to a close, he points out the ridiculousness of worshipping anything other than God. In verses 15 to 20, we have this image of the carpenter choosing a tree, cutting it down, taking the wood to make a fire and to bake some bread. Delighted in feeling warm and comfortable and fed, what does he do next? He thinks, what shall I do with the leftover log? I know, I'll make a god. To worship on the long cold nights when there's not much food around. He carves the log into an idol and bows down to it and worships him. The same log he chopped up for his barbecue to make his lunch over and to keep him warm is now responsible for answering his prayers. That's foolishness. The worst thing is, He cannot see his foolishness. In the message paraphrase of this section, Eugene Peterson captures the madness like this. Pretty stupid, wouldn't you say? Don't they have eyes in their heads? Are their brains working at all? Doesn't Doesn't it occur to them to say, half of this tree I used for firewood. I baked bread, roasted meat, and enjoyed a good meal. And now I've used the rest to make an abominable no god. And here I am praying to a stick of wood. Before we laugh at this foolishness, let's not forget we all do it. So often we bow down and look to the things of the world to help and we forget about God who is in his heaven. Because we were made to worship, we will always serve someone or something. Paul, picking up on this foolishness in his letter to the Roman church, said, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And today, Paul would say, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for money, sex, power, wealth, comfort, people, acceptance, family, children, church, ministry, or anything else you can think of that we turn into idols. 
We are desperate to worship, but we so often choose to worship what we can control. The carpenter lifted up his idol and placed it in the shrine where he could worship. He thinks he controls the idol, yet in reality the idol is controlling him. As the passage puts it in verse 18, our eyes are plastered over and we need God to open our eyes to see the hook we are on. If he doesn't, we will go through life knowing nothing, with closed minds ignorant to the danger we are in. In verse 20, our state is described as feeding on ashes. We literally feed on the ashes of the fire in which we burnt the same material that we are now worshipping. The idols that hook us make our lives miserable as we spend our days on our knees before this worthless, silent thing and pour out our cries for help. Like the carpenter kneeling before his wooden statue, so are we before our idols, saying, Save me, you are my God. And what do we hear? We hear silence. Our idols are silent. They can't save us. They do not answer us. And as we feed on the ashes of our own effort, we hear the crushing verdict, it cannot save you. So now we move from foolishness to hopelessness. Foolishness spent worshipping idols that answer us nothing leaves us with hopelessness. Idols enslave us, so who will set us free? We find the answer in the very next verse. God says, remember these things. I have made you. You are my servant. I formed you. I will not forget you. Can there be any more joyful words? Anything to make us happier? Despite all our efforts, our idols are worthless. But God says, I made you. You are worthy. And I remember you. I have not forgotten you. You turned aside from me, but I remember you. And if this wasn't enough, we hear these beautiful words. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I, I the Lord your God, have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Like the morning mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. Wonderful, 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 hope-filled words. Our idols stare silently as we call out to them for salvation. But not the living, immortal, uncreated God. He brings us home. It's he who saves us. It's he who protects us and cares for us and gives us value and worth. He redeems us as he comes to this idol-filled world and snaps the chains which bind us. In Jesus we are set free. The creator comes to the created and with unlimited power breaks the chains of sin and death and the devil. He comes to create, recreate our broken selves and recreate our fractured hearts. 
Where we were blind, he gives us sight to see the wretchedness of lives enslaved to idols of our hearts. Where we are enslaved, he sets us free by redeeming us, paying the price of our foolish, sinful rejection of the Creator in favor of the created. On the cross, he redeems us and blots out our transgressions. Why would we want to worship anything other than our God? who loves us enough to save us, even when we were unlovely. How are you doing with idolatry this morning? What are the idols in your heart? We all have them. Sometimes I find that idols sneak up on you. They start out at being a good thing. It may be a ministry or a member of your family. It may be a work that you really love. It may be a hobby. It may be a sport. It may be something else. And it starts out and it's a good thing. And then it sneaks up on you. And it hooks in. And suddenly it's drawn you away from the creator who gave it to you to bless you and to help you to rejoice and to enjoy him. You turn away from him and you turn to this silent idol. And you think that you will find your purpose and your worth and your value in that thing. And every time you go to it and say, make me happy, it's silent. It cannot save you. Only the one who created you can save you. Only the one who gave you life and breathed life into you can save you. Only the creator who came down to the created world and bore our sins and our transgressions and our shame upon the cross can save you. Your idols will not save you. They will not save you. I know in my heart that my heart is an idol factory. If I at any time start turning away from God and his joys and his presence then my heart will start turning to other things. This has been a hard couple of weeks for me. There's been stuff going on, and I know that I've found it hard to walk with my God. I haven't been spending much time in the Word, and I haven't been spending much time speaking to Him, and my heart has been taken up with other stuff. And it's broken because I know that only He can heal me. I hate it when I turn to an idol because I know it's silent and useless and it never answers. It never fulfills. Only Jesus fulfills. I wondered why I'd been given this passage and I realized I was preaching it to me. So I know what it's like to walk on that dark road when you want to give yourself over to idols that seem so good and so promising and turn out to be dead and silent and useless and worthless. So I'm just going to say that at the end of the service, I'm going to hang around here and there's going to be a few other people. And if you want someone to pray with you, just to pray with you to perhaps identify the idols in your life, or perhaps to just pray with you that you might actually receive some strength and power from God to throw off those idols, then look, please come forward and and just be happy to pray. And by the way, I'm not saying come forward because I'm sorted, I'm not. And do you know what? I'm going to say this other thing. If no one wants to come forward for prayer, then feel free to come forward and pray for me. But if you would like to come forward to be praying about the idols in your life, that your, fa- that your face might turn away from those idols and they may face the glory of our wonderful creator, unlimited God, then please come forward at the end.
Let's stop thinking that we, are above, that we are above our creator. And in humility, remember, we are created beings living limited lives in the face of the God of no limits. And let's turn our worship towards the one who is worthy of all worship. I'd like to close with the words of the theologian N.T. Wright. He said, The creation of the world was a free outpouring of God's powerful love. And having made such a world, he has remained in a close, dynamic, and intimate relationship with it. We have much to be thankful for and much to discover in all of creation.